Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Gay Hendricks. He's the author of The Big Leap. So, Gay, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, my pleasure, Tats. It's really great to be with you. Yeah, so I love your material. I love what you do. Obviously, you probably get this a lot, but the big leap stands out as something that you know is, is really exciting to me. Of all the things you've done, would that be the thing that most commonly people come to you with? Yes, I would say so, especially now. If you roll the clock back 30 years when my wife and I wrote our classic relationship book, Conscious Loving, Oprah Winfrey liked it and put us on her show back in 1990. And for the next 10 years, it was like relationship workshops all over the world, you know, thanks to Oprah. She's got a lot of clout. And we put on something like 2 million frequent flyer miles, my wife and I going around the world. And then um, we decided to quit traveling as much around 2000. And I finally had time to sit down and write The Big Leap. I always say, people ask me how long it took me to write The Big Leap. And I said, well, it took me a year to write it, but I've been thinking about it for 30 years before I sat down and actually wrote it. Yeah. And one of the key concepts in The Big Leaps is the uh, the upper limit, upper limit problem. How did that concept come to you? And so maybe describe for people that don't understand it. Yes. The upper limit problem is what I call the human tendency to sabotage ourselves just when things are starting to go better. And I bet everybody can think of a bunch of examples of that. The very first time I actually noticed it was in 1969. And I had gone on a diet and I had lost 35 pounds and I was feeling really great. And I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 1969. And I looked in the window of an ice cream store and there was a family of four devouring this huge banana split with all three different flavors of ice cream. And I just went in there and just ate an entire one myself, you know, no family of four, just me. And for about 20 minutes, I was high as a kite on the sugar high. But then it was like somebody punched me in the stomach, you know, a box with a boxing glove or something, because I bent over in the street. And I had the worst stomach ache of my life. And I realized I had felt so good that I didn't know how to feel that good. And so all I could do was sabotage myself and put myself back where I was before. Fortunately, I didn't gain 35 pounds back, but it really taught me a lesson that life is really about learning how to experience more and more positive energy and then spotting how we sabotage ourselves. Now, a lot of people sabotage themselves with overeating or over drinking or something like that, but you can also sabotage yourself with your thinking. I would say that most people's upper limit problem are between their ears, where they start to have good things happen. And then they say, oh, I don't deserve this because I did such and such back then. And they start worrying about it. And pretty soon they're back in that gloomy state they started in. Yeah, no, very good point. Now, how does this particularly show up in business or an entrepreneurial environment? What examples? Because I know you've worked with Michael Dell, who's seen tremendous growth and success. Um, How does it translate into the business and entrepreneurial world? 
Well, first of all, I just want to say a word about Michael Bedell, one of the most brilliant human beings and one of the most humble human beings I've ever met and very quick to take feedback. You know, there's none of that defensiveness or anything like that that a lot of big time, you know, especially billionaire CEOs have. And so I really appreciate that about Michael. Everybody on earth could learn how to how to receive and learn from your very moment. To me, the upper limit problem works kind of like this. I first started seeing it in the executives I was working with. Like I remember one guy named John who had a big breakthrough at work where he finally got a product to market that he'd been working on for literally more than a year. And it was a very expensive piece of machinery. It was like a $350,000 piece of machinery. But they finally got it to market. And everybody had high fives and toasts around the office. And then he went home and had this horrible argument with his wife about an addition they were doing on their house. So he came in feeling like a billion dollars and all of a sudden, wham, there he's in the middle of a big domestic drama. And so that's how a lot of upper limit problems goes. You have a big breakthrough at work and you mess up at home, or you have a big breakthrough at home and you mess up at work. But it's this problem that most of us carry around. We're afraid of feeling too good for too long at a time. And so we think if we feel too good, something's bad is going to happen. And sure enough, it does just because of the power of that belief. So worrying, worrying is one, I guess. Worrying one, and also illness and accidents. Mm. Oh, yeah. In fact, I got to tell you about, here's a gem dandy. One of the people I mentored, I do a program or have done a program where I mentor four individuals a year, usually young entrepreneurs. And I'm not doing it this year because this is a writing year for me. But one of my mentor people is a young entrepreneurial woman, brilliant woman, but she had a fear of public speaking. Mm. And so it made it harder for her to get her, you know, to kind of be seen and show up in the world because she was so shy about that. And I've known lots of people like that that are just brilliant people. They've just had the kind of programming that doesn't allow them to stand up in front of a group and kind of shine for themselves. And so I got her to sign up for Toastmasters, where you do, you know, short talks each week. And so she had her big talk coming up on this particular week. And she woke up with a sore throat the morning of the big speech. And of course, in her mind, that meant she couldn't do the big speech. So she canceled out. And the next time we were working on that and she realized, oh, I gave myself that sore throat because after I canceled the speech, my sore throat went away. Huh, isn't that interesting? And so that's a classic kind of how to use your body as an upper limit problem by having an illness come up or having an accident. There was a big research study where they found that a great many automobile accidents, single person automobile accidents happen within an hour of an emotional upset. So somebody will have an argument and then get in their car to drive down to the convenience store and get some brownies or something. And wham, there's a lot of interaction between our minds and our bodies. And a good bit of it is unconscious because we don't get very much media attention on the relationship between the mind and the body. In fact, a lot of advertising 
is designed to help you not trust your body. You know, it will say, hey, do you have this feeling? Well, take this pill. And there's money in that for the pharmaceutical companies. You don't ever see a big ad where a kindly uh, white-haired doctor comes on and says, hey, you have a headache? Don't take a pill. Think of what you're angry about because 90% of headaches are caused by repressed anger that's not expressed to another person. Well, that's a good piece of information, but there's no money in it. You know, it's a very useful thing, but it doesn't have any dollar value to a pharmaceutical company. So here I am talking about it, though, free. <laughs> Wonderful. You mentioned something about possibly creating some awareness. So I guess my, my where I'm going with this is, how do you start to work through it? I guess one of the strategies, if you're not feeling well, maybe try to figure out if that is something or if there's other things that are happening in your life that are good that are you know creating this sort of i don't know balancing mechanism uh, but how do you work through an upper limit challenge the main thing you need to realize is that all upper limit problems are based on fear and once you see that the obvious move then is to ask yourself what am i afraid of what am i most afraid of and I can tell you, because I've worked with a little bit over 20,000 individuals now up close and personal, that what a great many people are afraid of is letting their light fully shine. They're very afraid of stepping up and giving that speech or making that idea or giving that contribution or sitting down and writing that book or whatever their creative inspiration is. They're afraid to do that because they're afraid of outshining someone else. They're afraid to shine because they're worried it might outshine somebody that needs it more. Well, I'm telling you, I recommend that everybody open up and shine their light, what I call your true genius, because in every single human being, there's just a tiny speck of something that's just perfect you, and it's your contribution. And if you open up and wonder about it and encourage it, you will find it. I get letters from people, email. I always say I have the best inbox in the world because every day people write me with big breaks they've had, breakthroughs they've had with the big leap, you know, like... I got over my upper limit problem and gave my first speech today, or I got over my upper limit problem and finally registered for college. You know, just I love to open my inbox every day. And so what we need to do is get out of our own way. You know, it's like Christopher Isherwood once said, the ego is like a man standing right in front of you at the racetrack and won't get out of the way. <laughs> and so what do you do about that? Well, first, you own your fears. You say, okay, yeah, I am afraid of outshining. Or another one, the biggest one, the fear that there's something fundamentally wrong with you or something fundamentally flawed about you. You know, I have a person I was working with that was about to receive his you know how on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you go down and you put your handprints in the pavement there? Well, the next day he was to go down and get his handprints. So a pretty big star, right? Yeah. So he comes over to my place. I was a neighbor of his and he knows the work I do. So he came over to my place and said, hey, can you help me? I'm having what I think is a panic attack and I don't want to take any pills because I got this big thing tomorrow. And so... He came over and we were working out, actually out on my deck, the one that faces the ocean. And so we're out there on my back deck with the breeze blowing around us. And it comes right down to, 
he didn't feel like he deserved it because of some things he did a long time ago. And having this opportunity to get, you know, immortalized, you know, have your handprints next to John Wayne or something like that, you know, that's kind of like being immortal in show business. And that fear, uh, that brought up that fear that he has of being fundamentally no good. And so he was actually thinking about not going down for it, faking being sick. And so we did a process, we did a whole process out on my deck there of having me give him a virtual version of, you know, the trophy to take home and everything and practicing how to receive it with a whole ah, heartfelt thank you, you know, rather than shying away from it with fear. Yeah. Wonderful. So you, t- you touched on something in your last, what you just said on, we all have that speck of, you know, talent or genius and go towards a co- concept you talk about, which is the zone of genius. So how does people, you know, identify that genius they, they have in you? And then how do you cultivate that? Yes. Well, first of all, let me compliment you on choosing an activity to do in your life that is in your genius zone. Okay, It's obvious that you love what you do and you love asking these questions. And so that's how you find out what's in your genius zone. The big question is, what do I most love to do that makes the biggest contribution to people around me? What do I most love to do? I say you base your life on what you most love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. I haven't worked a day, even though I've you know, been very successful over the past 52 years, since I discovered what we're talking about, I haven't worked a day in my life because I get to go all over the world telling people to open up to their highest potential and here's a simple way to do it. And so I get to live on a steady diet of miracles. To me, that's not working, even though I get wildly overpaid for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous that a person should get paid 20,000 bucks for a 45-minute speech. But who am I to argue with that, you know, if, if that's what receive, they want right? to do? Receive, right? Receive. Yeah, receive. In fact, that's a very sacred subject to me right now because one of the big things I'm teaching this year is the power of receiving, how to receive. Because mm. most of us, you know, like you, for example, you know how to work in your prior life in a way that was stressful, right? You yes. know how to do things you don't like to do. And picture people all over the world are doing stuff they don't like to do. So we're eating food made by people that doesn't like to cook. You know, that's not a good thing. I want to live in a world where everybody's doing what they love to do, because I guarantee you, you know, like I'm no good with tools. I'm pathetic with tools. I once had a flat tire on the highway and I got out and I was staring at this thing with such helpless confusion that a guy actually pulled up and asked me if he could help me change my tire. <laughs> he spotted that I was helpless, you know, and hopeless, and bless his heart. And so I helped him as best I could, but I didn't know how to change a tire. And not only that, I thought it was ridiculous to stand out on the edge of the highway with cars whizzing by me. So I wasn't about to do that, you know, but he didn't seem to mind. Anyway, we all need to find the little niche in life where we're soaring with the effortlessness of a bird up in the air. Like I live in a mountain valley here in California where we have lots of hawks that soar around high in the sky. 
and they're up maybe, you know, quarter of a mile in the sky and they're absolutely cruising effortlessly. They've got their wings out and they're just riding the wind currents. And life can be like that. Life can be like learning to ride those wind currents so it doesn't get rough. And I'm not saying it's easy to do that, but if you dedicate your life to it, you can really make some amazing changes in how you respond to life. So it's like it smooths out your journey through life. Yeah. I mean, I guess for some, it might be hard to imagine what that could look like. It's clear to you that, you know, you found focus on teaching and helping people unlock that potential. What are some examples of people that you met or work with that discovered their zone? What was their sort of zone of genius and how did that work for them? I had a classic great example just with this past year's batch of, uh, I mentioned that I mentor four uh, young younger people, usually in their 30s or early 40s yeah. every year. You know, it's a costly program for them. It's a $25,000 program, but they get two meetings with me a month for that. So anyway, most of them find it quite worthwhile investment. And here's a guy that he's my, what would you call him? Teacher's pet or primo, primo example of the year. He came in and he wanted to accomplish two big leaps. One is he wanted to sell a business of his for $50 million, and he had two businesses, and he loved one and didn't like the other one, so he wanted to sell it. And he also wanted to write a book about some things he had started discover, discovering about entrepreneurhood. And so I got him started with, listen to this, 20 minutes a day of writing on the book. So he committed to writing 20 minutes a day. That doesn't sound like much, does it? but it is actually enough to get one good page done. And so I told him to be happy with one good page a day. That's, by the way, my writing style is I've written 50 books over the past 50 years, one page a day. Boom, boom, boom. Sometimes I'll get carried away and write two or three pages, but most of the time I'm going for 250 good words a day. And so anyway, I put him on this program and he committed to it. And within eight months, he had finished the first draft of the book, and then he sold the company for $54 million. So he maxed in both domains, okay? So that's just on a little bit of tweaking of his ordinary daily life and a big tweaking of his inner life because he had to get willing to receive at first, the $50 million, but then as we kept expanding, I said, why why settle for $50 million? Maybe it's worth $56 million. And actually, I think we did set the goal of uh, $56 million plus or minus 10%, and just to have a little you know, looseness in the system, not to have it be so tight. And sure enough, he uh, got that extra $4 million. And actually, I just got a text from him yesterday with a picture of his new boat <laughs> and uh, I don't think it would violate his privacy if I uh, just uh, showed you a, a close-up of the boat. Uh, where the heck did it go here? I'll try my best to describe it for people just listening on audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, here we go. It's a blue yacht, and I don't know anything about boats. In fact, I, I have managed to get seasick just about every time I've been on a big boat out in the ocean. So I'm... Uh, I'm not the sort of guy that dreams of having a big boat. 
<laughs> I dream of staying off big boats. I don't know, but it's a big blue yacht with, uh, they love to fish. And so uh, it's configured to do a lot of fishing in and a place to stay inside it and that kind of stuff. So anyway, it's just uh, an emblem, though, of what you can do if you really get your attention focused. You know that great saying by Walt Disney, if you can dream it, you can do it. Yeah. Because if it's already appeared once in your mind in the form of a dream, you can sculpture that and find a way to bring it into real life. And Yeah. I mean, just, just doubling back to your receiving point, I mean, is you're still working through this with your current book, I believe, but is part of it just putting it out there and sort of writing it out or, or committing to it? Is that one of the keys to receiving? Yes. Uh, well, one key, of course, is to get focused on something you do want to receive. That, you know, once you get a pinpoint on it, that's a very useful thing. Then that can show you how much you have to open, you know, because if you pick, let's say, being on uh, America's Got Talent, that's the one I'm thinking of. Okay, so let's say you picture yourself on America's Got Talent winning that show and you're sitting in your mom's basement in your underwear, that's a big gap. You've got a lot of receiving to do to get to that place. And I guarantee you there's going to be upper limits on that. But if you've got yourself pinpoint focused on something out there and are willing to make a commitment to it, that's the second move. Heartfelt commitment. Most of the time, people make commitments that they don't have their heart fully in. And therefore, that by automatic design almost creates upper limit problems because if you don't really want what you want, if you're wanting it for some ego reason, like uh, I like to play golf and I'm a member of a golf club about five minutes from my house at the Ojai Valley Inn yeah. and uh, Country Club. And so I played there for about 20 years. And I was going in one day to play and there was a guy just getting out of this fabulous brand new Ferrari, probably somewhere between a quarter of a million and half a million dollars worth of Ferrari. And he was getting out of it. Man, he looked like a million bucks. He was a young guy, looked like a Hollywood agent or something like that. So I went in, I played golf. When I came out, there was the guy down on the street at the end of the place where you go out of the uh, club. And he was down there, his car was stalled and his hood was up and he was standing there and he was screaming into the telephone. And I can imagine he was screaming at the Ferrari dealer or whoever sold it to him or a mechanic. Anyway, he was hopping up and down. He was so mad because his you know, half million dollar car had flaked out on him. So if you want something for ego reasons, watch what happens because the universe will usually step in and teach you whatever lesson you need to learn. Maybe he needs to learn not to be so attached to a $500,000 car. Maybe he needs to go home and have a five-minute conversation with his wife or something instead of that. So the key thing, though, is that get focused on something and then do whatever you need to do to receive that. And a lot of times, though, it's a combination of hard work and letting go. Or I wouldn't even call it hard work. You know, like I have a... a a friend, uh, Taylor Schilling, who's a well-known actor. She was in a famous series for a long time called Orange is the New Black. And 
she's been appearing in plays since she was a kid and then went to drama school and, you know, and to, so she's had thousands of experiences by the time she's now 30 years old or so where she's had the opportunity to shine and be rejected, shine and be rejected. Because by the time you get to her place or anybody else like that, who's starring in a series, you can bet that they've been rejected hundreds of times, you know, and that's part of life in that world. I remember a conversation with Steven Spielberg's wife, Kate, one time, and she was literally going to quit acting when she went for that audition for that Indiana Jones movie that she got the lead in, which then led to her being married to Steven Spielberg. So she was going to go home and call it quits if nothing happened. And boom, here she is. So it's an important thing if you have a goal to think of it like the automatic pilot on an aircraft because you'll drift off of it and then you need to self-correct. Drift off of it, self-correct and get back on track. You'll need to recorrect hundreds and thousands of times to get to the destination. But the nice thing about the automatic pilot, it gets from LA to Honolulu being wrong most of the time, simply because it's willing to recorrect and get back on track again. Yeah. You mentioned 50 books. You're writing another one. What, what are you working towards? You know, what, what are you trying to achieve? Like what, what, what are your future plans? Well, all my dreams have come true. I made five big dreams for my life, my big five wishes for my life. And every single one of them has come true or is still coming true. Like my fifth goal is to savor every moment of my life. And mm. I'm doing my best to do that right now, whatever I'm doing. So in one sense, I feel complete about what I've done so far. But the main thing to me is to keep your creative spark alive. Do something, whether it's write a book or cook a great soup or it doesn't matter as long as it, to me, creativity, it has to have the capacity to surprise me. And so for me, like I just finished writing a memoir and stories of my life. And I had a blast writing it, even though some of the things made me cry too, when I try to describe things that had happened to me in the past. I just finished that. And also, when I, I was 65 years old, I got inspired to start writing mystery novels. I always loved to read them and I couldn't find one to read. So I decided to write one myself. And so I created a whole series of half a dozen mystery novels about a Tibetan Buddhist private detective in LA named Tenzing Norbu. And all the books have 10 in the title because that's his nickname, Ten Norbu. And so the first one is called The First Rule of Ten, The Second Rule of Ten, and there's half a dozen of those. So I'm writing a couple more of those this summer. I'm finishing that. Also, I launched another mystery series about a London aristocrat named Sir Errol Hyde. He's a crosstown competitor of Sherlock Holmes back 100 years ago. And I was an old English major, and it gives me a chance to write in this ancient, antiquated, but very funny form. And I'm having a blast with him. I'm, I'm writing three different Sir Errol Hyde books this summer. Wow. That's, I mean, obviously, explore, explore, explore. Absolutely. And that to me, uh, Katie and I say this, Every breath you take after midlife is a choice between creativity or stagnation. So are you going to breathe for creativity? 
ha, are you going to breathe for stagnation and go through the motions? I don't want to ever go through the motions. I want to be waking up constantly until the moment I slip out of this mortal coil of mine. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Gay, is there anything you wanted to share that I didn't cover? You know, just closing this out. Tell me a little bit about you. How did you get into doing? What did you do before? And what? how did you get into doing what you're doing now? Oh, wow. Um, well, I, I've um, founded a, a few companies, but this current one is manufacturing business. But I really enjoy the podcast form, right? In terms of learning, interacting, you're trying to become a better listener because, you know, when you're asking questions in, in a podcast form, it just trains you better to do that. So I just have a blast talking to people that have different points of view and ideas. And I also find that when I talk to authors like yourself that are very well known, when you read the book, you get it a certain way. But when you're interacting directly with with the individual that wrote it, I mean, even if some of the words are the same, you just take it in much better. At least that's for me. Hmm. And I, I love that. And, you know, this constant idea of like you said, creativity, personal growth, whatnot is it's fun because you're always learning something new. Well, blessings to you. I'm glad you found your way into expressing your genius in this particular format. I've enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you so much, Kay. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com <laughs>